0: Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Making Action Happen. I am Sarah Blackhurst. And
0: I'm Brian McCain.
1: And we have a really interesting show for you today. We've had a lot of conversations lately about, I mean, offline, not on the show, but offline uh, about all the ARP funds, um, all this money that's coming out, and it's all really great. But th- the question for me has been over and over again, how do we access the this these monies. So we're going to be doing, uh, in September, we're going to be doing a series for our Action 22 members. Uh, We're going to do uh, a roadshow, if you will, in five different areas of of the Action 22 footprint that talks about, we're going to visit with the DOLA people, Oedit, uh, all these folks, and they're going to tell us how we can access those funds. In light of that, I have to introduce our guest today. Her name is Kathy Reynolds. And if you are in rural anything in Colorado, you already know who she is. She is the president of CSU Systems, but she is a former commissioner. I think she's a mayor, but she is an absolute force for rural rural stewardship, advocacy. I aspire to be Kathy Reynolds someday. And so I asked her to come on today uh, and talk a little bit about there was a really big thing that happened with with uh, CSU Systems and the Board of Governors uh, about a month or so ago. Uh, And if you get my emails, then you will get a link to an article that I think was in the Denver Post about that a little Mm -hmm. bit. But we've invited Kathy to come Mm -hmm. and really talk about, start to have those conversations about what this fund is, what it's trying to accomplish, and sort of the discussions that led up to them doing this fund and then how our rural communities are going to access that. So Kathy, will you just start out and tell everybody a little bit about you? Something maybe we don't know? Sure, Uh, well let me just
2: to clarify and be able to keep my job. um, I'm a special advisor to the Chancellor of the CSU system. Okay. Um, The system has um, presidents of Global Campus, presidents of Fort Collins, presidents at CSU Pueblo Um, And I was the commissioner for 12 years and um, the president of CCI, but I've been, I worked um, in many different areas, but I worked for Governor Owens, uh, Governor Ritter, and then Governor Hickenlooper. I think, Sarah, the first time I might have met you is when I did the tour and we did the Colorado Blueprint. I worked part-time for Dwayne Romero and then Ken Lund as we did that Colorado Blueprint as the economy tanked. Uh, In Colorado, that was um, that's it's always interesting to go into a community and talk about economic development and how how people how the state can help when the economy just shut down. So it it was an amazing group of people who actually carried a really good message. And I think that Colorado blueprint and that work, particularly in the rural areas, has um, really been the basis for a lot of Colorado's comeback. So I was a commissioner at Larimer County for 12 years. And then I transitioned and went to work for Carter State University as the associate vice president. First, I was the director of community development. And then I went to work as the associate vice president of engagement. And then I transitioned to the system um, for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons was President and Chancellor Tony Frank asked me, If I would take my rural experience and work on rural issues, I was born and raised in Franktown, Colorado, which was um, 45 miles from nowhere. Uh, And now it is a thriving metropolitan community. And I live in Virginia Dale, Colorado right now. We live on a ranch. And so rural is where um, I'm comfortable. I adore the fact that local governments in all communities, but particularly rural areas, are the reason that those areas thrive. And that's what holds communities together. Within that, um, not only the economic development, but those anchor institutions, your hospitals, your education institutions, uh, those anchor institutions are critical. And they, you know, I think, I don't know if you and I talked about this, but, There is what I call amenity communities. In an amenity community, you have luxury of having certain services. And that's why many people kind of migrate to the urban corridor. You have, you know, lawn services, you have laundromats, you have people that deliver to you. If you need something, you can reach out and you can find it. If you're in a rural community, you can reach out to your friends, but they're going to reach back. And so a rural community's amenities are humans as opposed to services. And that's what makes rural communities and you know, particularly our strong rural populations, probably stronger than a lot of the urban corridor when you run into things like recessions and pandemics and fires and, and different things that displace people's um, security.
1: I love that description. So, <laughs> <laughs>
2: So um, if, to, to, first of all, before we begin, I wanna thank you, um, Sarah and, and Kathy Schell from Pro 15, Christian Reese from Club 20. Um, I, I want people to understand if I could, and I know everybody that listens to you does, but the regions are so strongly represented by these organizations and your organization as the others Pro 15 Act, you know, Action 22, Club 20, um, the non-political nature of those organizations, and your ability to recognize that as a unit, you are extremely strong. And that's not an easy feat to do in normal times, but in the last few years, it's been particularly challenging. So, when I reached out and asked for your help and the help of others across the state in this rural conversation with the Carter State University System Board of Governors. Um, had you all not been there, this would um, this would not have evolved. And so I want to thank you before, before we move into this discussion. I want to thank you for that. And I also want to thank you for your strong leadership in Southern Colorado. Because Southern Colorado is, um, in my opinion, a fairly magic place that has a huge future ahead of it. And it's only because it's cohesive that it's going to work.
1: We agree. Uh, and thank you for that. We, we work really hard and it's, uh, it's not easy, but I think all of the interactions I've had with you always sort of begin with a question and you pose the best questions. And I like to think of myself as a student of the Socratic process. And so Our interactions are always super productive and we get things done because we, you and I will both ask the questions. There's never a time I think that you and I talk about anything that we don't pose a question to each other. So that's kind of how it got started. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. You
2: know, I remember um, when we began this conversation. So one of my charges from the board of governors and the chancellor was to really um, strengthen and dive into our rural communities. Carter State University is a land grant. And so we are by charter, by state constitution, we are in every county. We serve every county. Um, in doing that, um, we have access to those counties. And I think, um, you know, as years go by and you things pass, you begin to recognize that you need to continue to this is my agriculture term, dance with the person that brought you to the dance. And that in, (laughs) as as land grants came up, that was rural communities. And so um, this conversation was was supposed to happen um, in early last year, but the pandemic paused it. And I will tell you, and this is my opinion, I think that was actually a good thing in how this happened, because it gave us an opportunity, Sarah, to have people across the state in a Zoom call, which we're probably all really tired of, but in a Zoom call on an equal footing. So the entire board of governors, everybody that represents the leaders across the state, everybody was comfortable where they were. There wasn't um, any sort of... you know, you're invited to Denver, you ha- you got to go out to Lyman. There wasn't any of that. You were just able to be you. And I remember my question to you when I asked you if you would participate. You were so great in saying, we would love to. Uh, what do you all do down here in Southern Colorado? <laughs> um, I have to tell you, I have repeated that question because that's on us. And I think it triggered the map. I mean, we drew a whole new map, thanks to that question you had. And then joining your board of directors for a day in a conversation. I think sometimes, and I don't think it's just education. I think it's all of us because having been in local government, we certainly did it. You assume people know what you do.
1: Well, and I want to pause right there for just a second, because I did not understand, and once again, Brian had stopped and explained it to me, but I don't think any people, the normal people understand what the land grant, what that even means.
3: Yeah, um, and even I didn't really understand it until I started working into this life of public service, but it's important. And, and for our listeners, there's probably people out there that don't understand what you do with that. So, I mean, Cathay, can you give us the elevator speech on what that is and what it means?
2: Well, the land grant was bought in um, right after the the Civil War, and um, Chancellor Frank is probably the best um, historian of the land grant, it is in his heart, but it really established higher education in, in the states, and what it said through the Morrill Act, it said that every person in the state should be afforded an education, an affordable education that was accessible to them, and And it, you know, many, many years ago, um, two-thirds of the tuition approximately was paid for by the state, and a third was paid for by the student. So that has totally flipped now given a lot of funding issues. Um, But it was to say that it was no longer an elite privilege to have an education. It is a it is a privilege that was that should be allowed to every student across the state. When land grants started, they were primarily agriculture because we were moving into a period of time, as the war ended, when people were coming back, and you're going into that that period of time of growth. Um, but the land grants have expanded, and that means that it is our obligation, and we are, you know, as a land grant system, we have facilities all across the state. Those facilities are paid for by taxpayer dollars. And we have a responsibility with those taxpayer dollars, not just to those facilities, but to the people that live in those communities. So there's a very long moral act and um, land grant speech, which will take up the entire time. Um, um, Tony Frank would be excellent to have on your program because he's so good at it.
3: Well, and historically, it's it's kind of interesting because post-Civil War, um, there was this idea that everybody deserved this opportunity, whether it was education, farming, living in a city, starting a business. And this was kind of a result of this change of thinking that the United States had that said, Hey, we're going to give this opportunity to, opportunity to everybody here. And that was what this was part of a bigger thought process, the way we changed as a country. And it's very important. And it's yeah. helped out, it it's helped out so many people over a hundred years.
2: Yeah, it really has. And I think it also, Brian, to your point, it is the model of a land grant and extension and the research and education, that model particularly has been copied. Um, The National Institute of Science Manufacturing Extension Partnership works in that model. You work in a model that allows for the richness of of, um, education and resources to be broadcast across all of the areas you serve. So I think it's not just the land-grant education system. It's the model itself. And, you know, it was called a cooperative extension, but your co-ops very much serve that same thing. So I think the brilliance of it is not only in education, but just the model of it is is truly, I think, why the United States has done so well.
1: So let's fast forward to this last year. The Board of Governors decided that they were going to commit uh, a large sum of money to rural communities. First of all, why did that become a priority for them?
2: Well, I think to go back to a little bit of, of the history, um, you know, when you do your tours and you begin to ask people across the state, um, rural communities are different. They're, they're unique in themselves which is why they they like to be there. And so you can you can garner those a, a, those a, the answers to those questions kind of on a visit here and there but I have always said that if you get the voices across the state together you, you will hear certain things. You will hear some common issues and as we all came together that day the common issues were certainly broadband. I mean, if we're going to begin educating people online, we have to kick it up. And, and you know, Brian, you and Sarah, both, you and I have both been in meetings five years ago when somebody said, well, can't we just do this remotely? And people would look at each other and say, well, that's absolutely not possible. Well, then you have the COVID-19 virus that shows, yep, it is possible. And we need to get more elegant at it. We need to get better at it. And we need to recognize it's an infrastructure issue. So across that dialogue, it was connectivity, which I will touch on in a minute to, to what we're doing at the system level to um, do our part in helping that. Number can- two, we heard addiction and... <laughs> Go ahead, Brian.
3: Oh, I was gonna say back to Go the ahead. connectivity thing, why it's so important that again, we found out during COVID that we knew, you're right, five years ago, 10 years ago, we are in these meetings, but not only education, access to education, but it's also telemedicine. And five years ago, Mm -hmm. there was this, you know, telemedicine won't work. We don't have the connectivity. Nobody wants to do it. And now I saw the doctor telemedicine, you know, the other day. It's it's so important, not only in education, just our way of life to have this infrastructure to our rural communities and parts of the state that are underserved at this time.
1: Well, I think it's especially... Um, interesting that you brought it up right at this second because um, if uh, for those of you who watch the show on YouTube you're not seeing Cathay because her bandwidth is low and so she had to go to just voice. She lives in a rural community and she just doesn't have the bandwidth so there's going to be some breakup on the sound um, and our really great sound technician and our and our uh, director um, in Arizona is I'm sure right now he's a little stressed out because the sound isn't what he would like it to be, but that's the reality of what's going on right now, and it it definitely speaks to the how how much we need to do in order to be competitive or any of those things. So it's the education, it's the healthcare, but it's also an ec- the economic development piece that just weighs on us. And as much money has been spent and as much money that's committed, we're out of excuses for any of our communities in Colorado to not have this done by the end of what next year? I mean it's just crazy for it not to happen.
2: So Sarah, would you like me to ask your sound director if you'd like me to call in? That may clarify.
1: <laughs> he would he would give us he would give us a heads up if he wanted us to do that. No, so we're fine. good. You're, you're fine. fine. All right. So the next okay. piece, the addiction piece that you wanted to talk about. So, um, yeah, and I want to go
2: back to Brian's comment because I too just had a, a checkup from a telemedicine doc. It was it was awesome. Um, I think I think not only you know, not only the telemedicine, but as you begin to establish rural healthcare in these regions for access for rural communities, you're going to have to have that telecommuting ability. The other thing that I think they found, we found this last year, is it is a better access to mental health services if you can do it from your house or your pickup than if you have to go into a mental health center. You just they won't do it, and so there's just a comfort level I think that the technology is going to bless us with, and we need to get we need to get very serious in Colorado and across the United States that this is an infrastructure that we all have to have. So it was, it was mental health and it was education. It was looking at how, and I was listening last week to Dr. Javik's um, interview and it, her, you know, her comments were very similar that the same conversation you're having in higher ed, which is you've got to give kids learners, not just kids. You've got to give them an on-ramp. There has to be a way for them to get a job, a certificate, a training, because if they don't, they can't continue. Now they may not go into higher education. They may like those those careers like cybersecurity, um, the technical training that they're doing at PCC. But if they do wanna go, they have to have a job. And so we as educators, and that is training, community colleges, higher education, secondary, post-secondary, we are going to have to look at the fact that we are a system, we, we will always be, you know, entities unto ourselves, but we're going to have to recognize that the customer wants to move through a system. And there's, um, you can look at a community college, you can look at your associates, you move into your bachelor's, and then the conversation of concurrent enrollment, and then stackable certificates. So how do you get these certificates that allow you to get credit as you move through your life? So you're not, you're not taking training in something that's not going to pay you back later. And I think there's a really excellent conversation going on among all sorts of educators about recognizing that because you. I think we've seen what happens when you take a year off, when you put a pause on people's education and their forward movement. Um, it's it, we're gonna see the, we're gonna see the outcomes of this for the next five or six years. And I think from it we need to learn that we need to move, move forward a little more expeditiously. So to your question, Sarah, it was it was mental health, it was tele, it was the telemedicine, being able to deliver education. It was also being able to offer programming. And I think it's another tenant that I think you know, we um, reverberates with what Patty was talking about is recognizing what those communities need. And it goes back to rural communities. If you're going to do economic development and you're going to get a company that wants to grow and thrive, they need to be able to know that they can train their workforce. <clears throat> so when you look at that connectivity, if we can connect cohorts across the state, if we can, if we can say we have a cohort of five, in Canyon City and we have a cohort of four in Sterling and we have a cohort of six, you now have a strong cohort that can learn because of that connectivity. And that opportunity can happen in con- not only your higher ed institutions, but in com- in community colleges as well. And it all, it all made us galvanize, I think, our thinking that we've probably been thinking for years, but it forced us um, into that conversation. So um, the other thing that I think we're doing, I, I know we're doing is, and this was, um, this came out of that dialogue. So the university is looking and recognizing um, the special demographic of rural learners. We have always looked at different demographics. Every university looks at their um, their different socioeconomic demographics you count it you see where they come from I mean that's just a federal reporting issue but rural learners I think are are they're unique and they have unique opportunities and they have unique challenges so as we looked and I'll just I'll let you know this as we looked at our enrollment from rural which you know, used to be our population, it was down. It was, it was rather depressing when we looked at those numbers. And I think it was also a little bit shocking to the Board of Governors to look and say, how come they're not coming here? Well, I think in, in certain ways, th- there's a lot of answers to that. Um, partly because you're finding Nebraska, Wyoming, Texas Tech, Southern Texas, they're recruiting like crazy they know our Colorado students are awesome. So they're aggressively recruiting. So that's somewhat taking your eye off the ball and not recruiting. And part of the money that was allocated from the board is to put recruiting specialists back out there to begin putting people like me out there that talk about what they have, but also people that have a whole lot more brain than mine to talk about what's available in the classes and what you have to have. So that's number one. And then to recognize the, the changing demographic. I mean, in your area down in Southern Colorado, looking at that Latino, German, Italian population, we need to recognize that, that our demographic is going to change. And we need to be very cognizant of how that's changing and how we deliver programming. Um, It's not enough anymore to say, yes, we know that. We have to make the words matter.
3: You know, uh, one thing, and I've talked about it on the show before, is that you know we would do the military academy nominations in Congressman Tipton's office. And speaking to the academies, they actually sought out the rural students over the urban students in a lot of cases. And the reason for that is they found that kids from a rural area, especially, you know, farm towns, fishing towns, um, they just had a better sense of self and were able to think on their feet versus the kids that came from New York City or Denver or Los Angeles. And they they gave a great example of, you know, uh, they put them on a ship and the ship breaks down and they say, well, we need this part. And all the, the urban kids um, from the metro areas were basically like, well, we'll order a new part. When it gets here, it gets here. And then all the rural kids are like, well, give me some duct tape and bailing wire, we're gonna (laughs) fix it. You know, and they they actually sought that out in the last few years. It was a a goal of theirs to recruit more rural students to go to the military academies.
2: I think that's you know, Brian, I want to yeah, I want to echo that because I sit on, I have had the privilege of sitting on those academy recommendations for Senator Bennett and then Senator Salazar. And you're absolutely right. Those kids that can think on their feet and have those. Creative skills um, are, th- and they're just amazing interviews. And if you go to, and I know you have those graduations, yeah. you know your life yeah. is going to be okay. It, it yeah. even in a even in a bad time, you look at these kids and say, we're going to be okay.
1: Yep. So when we come back from break, we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to do a deep dive on what this new program or these new efforts that your um, that CSU Systems is making, uh, and a little bit about how. Our rural communities can get tapped into that. So when we come back in just a minute, stick around with us with Cathay Reynolds.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders. Xcel Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 Southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, you can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org.
3: Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast.
2: Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast.
3: If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts.
2: Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a
1: global community. Our experts come from all walks of life and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, Self improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics.
0: Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics.
3: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station.
0: VoiceAmerica.com. This is Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also reach out via email to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. Now, back to Making Action Happen.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We were just discussing what we mean by the term a rural learner, how that's just a little bit different, and when we're talking about the demographics and how to really serve those rural communities. CSU Systems has been knee deep in trying to get this together because they had a little bit, as Kathy said a few minutes ago, they had a little bit of a wake up call when what the school that had traditionally been a very rural school, and they're looking at who is attending, um, their rural numbers had gone down. And so they've made uh, some tremendous efforts to try to correct that ship and have dedicated a whole lot of money. So, so Kathy, tell us first what the name of the program is, how much um, the Board of Governors has, has set aside or has um, directed for this and what you're doing, and then what is that going to actually look like?
2: So the, the Board of Governors um, in their allocation, and it was an allocation that was sent to CSU Fort Collins, which is our flagship school and where you do enrollment. So you've got that core facility there. Um, part, of the, part of the money, there's around $8 million set aside for the rural initiative itself. And that's through the Office of Engagement and Extension. Uh, but then another part of that money, and I think there was around $20 million, which is the you know, you, to run a program, you have to have the enrollment, you have to have the scholarship ability, you have to have the mechanics of it to run. And I think um, that's something that, it, you know, it, it's, not, it's not sexy to look at the mechanics of a program. It's easier and more fun to look at, here's the money, this is the exciting thing you can do with it. But the mechanics of it is important because <clears throat> as, as Dr. Jaffik was talking, those concurrent enrollment um, and those articulation agreements and how how easily students can move through that system is important and that's regardless of whether you're a a a first-time learner or you're being re-educated into a profession like our coal communities when you see coal going you know beginning to wane how do you re-educate people so the mechanics of making sure that moves slowly, I mean smoothly, is has to be really revitalized. And then as you look at what we have to offer across the state in partnership with community colleges and on our own, we want to make sure that we look at several, and I'll give you the pathways. <clears throat> so one of them, one of the first goals is to make education accessible. And that's that broadband conversation, Brian, that we had, which is we want to make sure that. You know, we we recognize we had students sitting in the parking lot of Starbucks and sitting in the parking lot um, trying to do their education, you know, kind of leeching off a line at a library, particularly in COVID because they couldn't go in. So that accessible education and, and the scholarship, looking at rural scholarships as a category. So how do we look at that rural scholarship? Then looking at improving health and that's the mental health, aging health, and prevention and health, and that's that telemedicine discussion that we just had. Our accessibility in a community may afford someone the ability to have that place or time when they can access a healthcare provider. So that's important to us. And we have health programs. We have our obesity trade. We have a lot of programs that need to be offered in those communities, and then one of the things that we heard in the governor's interviews across the state was that there's a demographic and agribility that went through the legislature this year, looks at some of that, but it's the disabled community and the rural community. If you're a disabled um, learner in a rural community, you have to have that access. Mm-hmm. You can't just you know call a number and have have that happen. So you need that access. And then vibrant communities. The programs and the entrepreneurship program, the the tourism program, the programs we offer need to be offered in rural communities. So that helps build, I was just on a conversation, Sarah, and it came off of your conversation actually with Phil Rico. We had a great conversation with Phil about, and we're working with Trinidad State because they now have Fisher's Peak. We have a master's of tourism program. We have a natural resource program to build workers and education in that community in partnership with our community college. Fisher's Peak is gonna be, is gonna really set a tone for Trinidad and that Walsenburg area. So we need to be able to offer high quality programs in there. So, and then having those, having, and I think this was in Patty's interview too, there has to be a listening to a community that says, what do we need now? I know that, um, Engagement has been doing a statewide assessment through their extension folks. And the, the results of that assessment are asking their community, what do you need? Because a majority of the salary in a lot of the communities are paid for by the commissioners. Your taxpayer dollars pay a fair amount of those salaries. So the person that needs to say what you need are the local leaders in that community. And then being able to to support a thriving economy, so new agricultural practices, looking at how we really bring in and support um, that regional effort that's going on. Um, We're in in process right now of looking at stronger partnerships in agriculture with CSU Pueblo. Um, They've not been offering agriculture programs, looking at agriculture programs coming there. And what does that look like? Because the San Luis Valley looks very different than the Western Slope. So how do you bring the appropriate programs? And then how do you look at what needs to come from that? Well, it's processing, marketing, putting those crops together. How do you put that cooperative together? Those are expertise we have, but we have to know that they're the right expertise for the community and how do we deliver it.
1: So can you just really quick, because, you know, I have 15 questions in my brain right now, but what, first of all, what does a vibrant rural community, can you give me an example of a vibrant rural community in Colorado right now, one that we can look at as a sort of a model?
2: You know, I I think if you look at, and when I talked about the amenity communities, I think that's a good example of communities that have, and Pueblo is certainly one of them that have come together and begun to add um, new amenities to their community, the one amenity that I think is, um, it's not tangible in in visibility, but it's resilience. And as you build a resilient community that understands how to rebound from economies, how to rebound from natural disasters, how to support each other, those communities will, will begin to thrive. So, and then the vibrancy of that community depends on, um, and one of the things that came out of that discussion across the state with the board was leadership development, because we heard from several communities, we need to begin building young leadership development. You know, who's gonna come behind you and Brian? Who's gonna be the ones that are the next generation bringing this forward? And we we have to recognize that that is a mentoring issue and we've had a whole year when they haven't had a chance to mentor, we have to know how we build that community. And that forms a vibrant community. Carter State University Extension and their programs have those leadership capacity building um, programs. We have have economic development folks, we have anything that community needs, but in that assessment, we need to know what that community needs in order to bring it.
1: So one of the things that I think it's an important part of that and maybe, and you and I've talked about this offline on several occasions is for, um, a parent or even for a young adult who's looking at expanding their education. It's, you know, it's an investment. It's all of those things that we talk about, but realistically, how do we create an environment where, um, Somebody is not going so far into debt to get their education uh, that they're, it's not worth it for the reimbursement of how much they're going to make. When you're talking about, um, and I, there was an article, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, about how somebody has gone in, you know, they're three or $400,000 in debt for an, you know, to become an attorney when they're making $70,000 a year as an attorney, uh, for the first 10 years of their of their career. These are the kinds of things we're thinking about. And so I, I wonder what uh, and I, I know you guys have had this conversation. that's one of the big barriers that, that we look at in our rural communities is is it really worth that?
2: Well, and I, I think you I mean you're, you're spot on because it's a really hot topic conversation. Um, one of the things that I think um, there's a there's a program called the Colorado Promise, which is in Arapahoe Community College. It's at CSU. In some of the institutions, they call it something different. Which, so if you don't call it all the same thing, people don't know it's there. Which is the magic of bureaucracies. But, um, I think as you look at that, we we work with our first generation students. There's a lot of scholarship ability in a lot of these in a lot of these education institutions that is not taken advantage of. But I think, Sarah, you touched on something that is a little deeper. And when you look at first-generation students or rural students, you know, their support system is their family and their parents and their community. If you don't, if you just reach out to a student. Um, they may not want, and I think you had that. You had that on Patty's interview, where a lot of people are afraid to send their kids into a big institution. Send them to Fort Collins. Send them to Denver. You want to make sure that they see in place, and that's why the rural initiative and the community colleges are important. They see this as a comfort level. You're not going to lose your student, and we're going to do everything we can through scholarships and through movement of enrollment and through the funds that come in to make sure that you either graduate debt-free or with the minimum amount and that we use those. And that's a responsibility that I think the education institutions have is looking at how we do this and how we really maximize those dollars that are there. That's why I talked about the rural scholarships. It's important to bring those Representatives from the university system, and it's one of the goals of this money, into the community so they can have those discussions. You know, let's sit down and have an honest discussion about what's available. How do you afford it? Um, you know, Patty was talking about the first two years at a community college allows you to have that next two years as a more affordable opportunity. Well, those next two years should be affordable as well. So that's a partnership that needs to be worked on. Um, My son went to a community college for his first two years, and then he took his last two years at CSU. My other uh, two daughters went straight through to CSU, Um, but they saved, you know, there's a money saving, but when my older daughters went through, it was the old model where the state paid for two-thirds of it, and when my my younger son went through, it was the new model where we paid for it, so it was... um, I got to experience both sides of that legislative ability. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah.
3: And I think one, and you hit on this a little bit, one um, thing that's important, especially specifically to rural communities is educating the students that there are scholarships available. There are financial aid programs, this sort of thing. Because a lot of times, you know, the, this, these kids are in high school and I, my daughter's in high school right now. Um, I think, and it's no dog on. Where she goes to school or the district or anything, but I don't see the effort being made as much to educate her about how she can receive scholarships, financial aid, that sort of thing. And I, I know in some of the bigger cities they have more resources, so it's similar to grant writing, right? You know, Denver is going to get a million grants because they have people to do that. Well, Walsenburg's not because they don't have anybody that can do that. And I think that's very important for the rural communities and the students to have a process that shows them, you know, what is available, what they qualify for, what they can go after. And, and you know, just my experience lately, that's kind of been lacking in the rural areas.
2: Yeah. And Brian, that's the rural navigator positions that we talked about because yeah. it, you're absolutely right. Um, Yuma, Colorado, many years ago, used to send us anywhere from seven to 14 students and they raise a lot of scholarship money as does Steamboat, as does the Southern area. But if you're not there saying, how do we maximize? And Sarah, this came out of your retreat. If you only get $50,000 and you only take $50,000, shame on you, you should be able to take that money, leverage it and really support multiple students in that area. But that's, that's a responsibility we all have to work with the parents and the support system of these kids and that's where that rural navigator program that's coming out of some of this money um, is there for, and, and also working in the languages and the cultures that are around.
1: So I think that's where the, we're talking about the proverbial rubber to road on when you make education a priority. And it's something that's been sorely lacking. When I look at neighboring states um, all surrounding us, they put a higher priority on education than we have in Colorado. And that's what needs to flip, I think, is when you see somebody who can go to, and when I was going to college there, we had a whole lot of students from New Mexico because we had that, um, I mean, it was cheaper for them to go uh, into Colorado to come to Adams State than it was to go where they were. So half of the students or half of my friends were from New Mexico. But when you now fast forward, I'm not going to say how many years later, fast forward, however many years (laughs) later, um, you know, and my son is trying to navigate schooling. And the thing that, that freaks him out and me out is he still sees that we're paying on our student loans from a billion years ago. And so that's the part that I think that if we can really put rubber to road, leverage those dollars and do that, then I think we can start to move in the direction that will make us competitive on that higher education um, in the Western states for sure. So tell us a little bit okay. about how this program is going to do that.
2: Well, I think first of all, the, the, like I talked about, the mechanics of it and and getting that flow through it, it is going to improve. Secondly, the rural navigators and focusing on the rural communities and asking that question of the regions and communities, what do you need? And then delivering and improving that delivery service. You know, one of the things that we are looking at, and this goes to a systems, um, this isn't part of this, but it's one of my other tasks is we're we're tasked from the chancellor with looking at how we use our Colorado State University facilities. And right now we can deliver to the appropriate level in most places, um, the programs that we need to deliver. So we can deliver our extension programs, our research programs to our space, but how do we use that facility, the connectivity that we have, how do we use it as a to and through to support the community around us? So that's a whole different way of looking at what the taxpayers paid for. They paid for the facility, they paid for us to deliver those programs from there. But how do we use that connectivity and partnership with the people in that community to say, how do we expand that um, middle mile, last mile connectivity, Not, not being the purveyor of it, but being that two through connection as we look at this infrastructure issue. And I think if these anchor institutions, hospitals, education institutions, we're going to have to recognize that we are part of the infrastructure. And how mm-hmm. do we maximize that? You know, as you said, Sarah, there's a lot of, um, you know, the EDA has some announcements, um, CARES money, there's a lot of money, which, which is exciting because, you know, it's with billions with a B, and that's always exciting. But I think the, the most important part of that is recognizing you are part of an infrastructure that can raise all of Colorado. And that gives an ability for us to have those conversations and find those affordable ways to get education that um, will give your son and and Brian, your your daughter, the ability to have an education, maybe where they are um, with a great education background and then move through their life in their state if they wanna stay there. One of the things that happened, and this was 25 years ago, I think, and Brian, you'll remember, We had the Colorado paradox. I didn't mean that because it was 25 years ago, sorry. (laughs) Um, We had the Colorado paradox where we didn't have enough engineers. So we imported them from California and the East Coast. Well, and this didn't just happen to Carter State University. When those people came and located along the Front Range, primarily in Douglas, Teller, Larimer, Boulder. um they brought a lot of technology with them and they helped us thrive. I mean, God bless them for coming. But their alma mater was San Diego, Michigan, Penn State. Huh. So, so they skipped our Colorado colleges when they sent their kids. They, they said, OK, you know, Brian, you're going to go to my alma mater, which is not Card State University or the University of Colorado. You're going to go to Penn State. Well, that's a generation of students that we didn't get. So as educational institutions and the state of Colorado and regions and local governments, we need to work on the fact that these young people and learners are, are Colorado citizens and natives now. They are born and raised here. We want to attract them and we want to hold them and we want to educate them.
1: So that's going to be the big paradigm switch. This is what you're talking about, really, is how we think about ourselves and what our worth is with regard to education um, and how we value yeah. the education and what we think that that kind of education is worth. I'll, I'll tell you that um, my brother has just finished his second master's degree with CSU Global, um, and he raves about it. And it was they made it so easy. They came to him. But that's a master's degree. And so I mm-hmm. think that that's a very attainable thing, um, and that seems to be. But there there is that generational gap, because uh, you know he was, you know uh, he was older. He wasn't, you know, a young a young student. But when we talk about the that rural dynamic, for so long we've made do with what we have. We um, are competing constantly with. Uh, constantly competing for minimal resources um, and that's put us behind a little bit but in every aspect of what we've been discussing lately on the energy economic development um, housing all of those things it's going to be that collaborative piece that brings everybody back together to start thinking collaboratively rather than we're in competition for the same limited resources. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's why I like what you're saying about the infrastructure that's already there. So I assume that part of this plan is to really educate local governments on what infrastructure that's there that they can tap into, correct?
2: Well, it's it's making sure. I mean, we have great relationships with our local government because a lot of our extension folks are sitting in commissioner offices or courthouses. Mm -hmm. So it's also, you know, that infrastructure, Sarah, and I think... I want to kind of harken back to one of our, one of our really interesting conversations where you and I were questioning questioning at each other, I think, which is what does it look like if the rural urban conversation um, begins to meld? And I think we asked that question somewhere in Eastern Colorado, but I think, you know, somebody else asked me that and I said, we really need to put, as you said, the rubber to the road. It's time to take those steps recognize that infrastructure is not just bricks and mortar. Infrastructure are the educated professionals at these learning institutions, the educational professionals that we have in rural communities. And those other infrastructures are those relationships. And a land grant university has those relationships in those communities. And part of this is recognizing we need to maximize that to deliver healthcare, to deliver community leadership, development, education, and research, and we need to step up, and that's what this does. It steps up and says, um, actions speak louder than words, ask the community what they want, and let's make sure they know that they have, what we went back to, what a land grant says, the ability to have education, research, and outreach any place in the state that you have a land grant university.
1: Well, that caps it off beautifully, and um, as we're out of time with you, um, just really quick, how do how do people get a hold of you to further this conversation if they really want to get involved?
2: You know, they can, and, and re- several people have reached out. They can contact me, or they can also contact their extension folks. But my address is Kathy. It's K A T H A Y. Dot R E N N E L S at colostate.edu, colostat dot And if they want to, they can send you a note, and I know you'll ship them to me.
1: Absolutely, I will. And everybody knows how to get a hold of us. You can do that at show at action22.org. We are working really hard on the annual meeting that's coming up. As I indicated at the beginning of the show, we're going to be doing a learning series or a, a convening series that we talk about how to access ARP funds. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. Um, Also, we want to encourage everybody, especially since this redistricting is hot on the legislative side right now, um, if you get my emails, you will see where you can go and have that discussion. And uh, you are most definitely welcome. I'm happy to talk with anybody on the redistricting issues. So join us next week. We're going to talk about a few more things about uh, what's happening in Action 22 and um, around the state. We'll see you then. Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.